Well, we have been in a 21 day fast and uh, we are approaching the last week of that fast. Can I get an amen? Yes, amen. And uh, during a fast, inevitably during the 21 day fast every year, uh, it's so funny how your mind just, you, how much you start thinking about food. You think about it a lot when you're not eating. And uh, one of the things, I don't know why I do this to myself, uh, but I, one of the things I do during a fast often is I will start watching like cooking videos. It's like, why, why am I torturing myself like this? I'll, I'll watch cooking videos. I'm not lying. I'll, I'll look up recipes I'll look up like nutritional facts about things. I'm like, I wonder how many grams of protein are in a filet of salmon, you know? And I just start, like I, I start getting all this information about food. I start looking at how food's prepared. I start theorizing about food. Last year in the middle of the fast, I kid you not, I found a grill on Facebook Marketplace in, in Atlanta. I drove to Atlanta in the middle of the fast and bought a grill. Cause I was like, I'm gonna use this grill when this fast is over with, that's what I'm gonna do. And uh, it's just, you know, here's the thing. I look at food, I talk about food, I theorize about food, I look at recipes, all the different ways that it can be made. But here's one thing I'm not doing. I'm not actually eating food. <laughs> I'm not partaking in it. Uh, I'm just talking about it. And, and I find this actually to be pretty true a lot of times about our Christian faith. I think a lot of times we get together with people and we talk about church. We get together with people and we theorize about church and what church should be doing or what it should look like. Uh, or, you know, we have these ideas of every, everything we should be doing. Or maybe we, we have our favorite preacher that we listen to. We podcast and we listen to sermons. And, and we, we do all of this stuff that is really just Christianity in theory. But we never actually get to Christianity in practice. Can I tell you something? That our spiritual lives and our emotional health and maturity, you know, we've been in this series about it as well with my soul. But spirituality is not something we predominantly feel. And it's not something that we sit around and talk about. But spirituality, following Jesus, is not something we theorize about. It's something we practice. It's something we do. And it's in the practices. It's when we practice the way of Jesus that's where the Holy Spirit meets us and transforms us into the image of Christ. We've been talking a lot about the soul and the heart and the mind and having a soul that's healthy. But how do we get a soul that's healthy? How, how do we become uh, fully trained followers of Christ and disciples of Christ? It comes in the practices. It comes when the rubber meets the road and we do the things that Jesus told us to do so we can become who we're supposed to become in him. Today, I want to talk to you about spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Now, I want to show you this. Uh, you can see there's two different types of spiritual practices. And these are things that Jesus did, the disciples did. These are things that Christians have done for thousands of years. And the reason Christians have done them for thousands of years is because they're, pro they're proven, they're tried and true. When we engage in these things or when we abstain from these things, 
The Holy Spirit works in us and he transforms us into the image of Christ. Now, we're not doing these things to earn salvation. We're already saved. We're doing these things because we're saved and we want to follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit will help us in these things. So I'll talk more in depth in a minute about the disciplines of abstinence, which is where we abstain from things. There's the discipline of solitude and silence, fasting like we're doing right now, frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice. These are disciplines of abstinence, practices of abstinence. But then there's the disciplines or the practices of engagement, which is studying the Word of God, worship, celebration, serving one another, prayer, fellowship, confession, submission. These are all things. These are how do we quit theorizing and watching videos about and just talking about and actually start doing the things of God. It happens in the practices. And the reason Jesus was able to do what he did, the reason Jesus was able to respond like he did to certain situations was really because of the practices he had in his life, practices and habits of grace and of the Spirit. And, and, and it, it enabled him to become and to do the things he did. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 26. And it's a famous story about Jesus as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And really we're looking at the way Jesus responds and the way the disciples respond on Jesus's last night on earth. It says, Matthew 26, 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For indeed the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time and saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. One of the tenets of our faith, one of the things that we believe is we believe that Jesus is mysteriously 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Now, this is obviously that's something that's not easy to explain completely, uh, and we have to receive it by faith. But one of the things we miss sometimes when we think about Jesus as 100% man and 100% God, one of the things that we just mistake or forget about is the humanness of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that it was necessary for Jesus to take on flesh and blood and become like one of us. In this way, he's a perfect representative for us because like us, Jesus suffers. Like us, Jesus is tempted in every respect. Yet, unlike us, he is without sin. 
He can sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with us in our humanity. And Jesus, he is our Savior. A hundred percent he's our Savior. But after being our Savior, he is our model. Jesus models for us what it looks like truly. He shows us a new way to be human. He shows us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live our lives as Jesus lived his life in this world for the kingdom of God. Now, come on. We all know we don't do this perfectly. We all know we'll never do it perfectly. But Jesus is constantly forming us and shaping us by the power of the Holy Spirit so we can live a life like he lived. So we look at the story of Jesus today, the greatest temptation. Now think about this. Early on in Jesus's ministry, who does Jesus face? Jesus faces the devil out in the desert. And three times Satan comes to him and tries to tempt him. And you know what? Jesus just tells him, he flicks him like a little bug and says, get out of here, Satan. (laughs) But here we are at the end of Jesus's life. And this temptation is so much stronger. It's not the temptation of the devil. Now it's the temptation of his flesh. Him not wanting to do what he knows the Father is asking him to do. Because this is a tough ask. God is asking the Son. The Father is asking the Son to willingly lay down his life on the cross. The will of God for Jesus is the cross. And that is not an easy task. That is extremely hard to lay one's life down, to be falsely accused, to die the death of a criminal, to be publicly shamed. How could Jesus endure the cross? How did he do it? Well, notice the difference between Jesus and the disciples. When the hour of trial comes, when the rubber meets the road, when it's do or die, somehow Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus does the hard thing. He sets his face like stone and does the will of God. He doesn't flinch. But the disciples, on the other hand, the disciples fail miserably. They scatter, they run, they hide, they stay, they run for their own lives, they're afraid. When they are pressed, they fail under the pressure. What's the difference? Why does Jesus not fail under pressure, but the disciples fail under pressure? Well, you could say this, Jesus is God and humans are weak. Okay, sure, that's true. But remember, Jesus is one of us. He faces temptation. Let's not think that this was easy for Jesus for somehow, just because of his, the, his, 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 the, the God part or the God wholeness of him. Let's not think that this was just some walk in the park. Clearly it's not. Now, it seems like him facing Satan, that seemed like a more walk in the park. But him facing his own flesh and desires here, This is not easy. What's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is that while Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. The difference is in the off season, Jesus was in the gym. Jesus was doing the practices. Jesus was putting in the time and he was building that soul and he was building those inner character traits. While the disciples in the off season, they're at the beach hanging out. Okay, they're they're having a good time, but Jesus is in the gym putting in the time. And when it's game time, when the pressure is on, when the heat is on, Jesus triumphs, but the disciples fail under the weight of the moment. The weight of the moment was simply too much for them. How is it that Jesus didn't fail? It's because Jesus had certain practices that he did in private that enabled him in his public ministry. Jesus had a way of life 
that his disciples were going to learn and they needed to learn. Okay, we see this, maybe one example you could think of is in Mark chapter 9. Jesus has been up on a mountain with a few of his disciples. He comes down off the mountain and there's a great disturbance that he runs into. The other disciples who are at the bottom of the mountain have been approached by a father, a parent of a child who was possessed by a demon. He asked the disciples to cast the demon out from the child, but the disciples were not able to cast the demon out. Now keep in mind, the disciples had cast out demons before. They had been on journeys with Jesus, and Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons, and they did it. But now they've come up against something that was greater than they were able to rebuke or cast out. Their previous methods didn't work. And when Jesus comes off the mountain, he rebukes the demon. And the demon's obstinate, but the demon has to go. And so privately, after this episode, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, Hey, hey, we, we've cast out demons before in your name. How come this time we couldn't do it? What was, what, what's happened? And Jesus said, uh, this is what it says in Mark 9, 28. It says, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says to them, this kind, meaning there was a specific, there was something about this devil. This devil was stronger than you faced before, fellas. You, you had a, maybe you were casting out little principalities, but now you're up against something that's pretty great. And this kind of principality, this kind of devil can only be driven out, not by anything, but by prayer. This kind of devil needs, it, it's stronger than your previous preparation. And so why does Jesus succeed in public when often the disciples fail and Jason Isaac says it like this. Jesus says, you could not do what I did publicly because you don't do what I do privately. It is the practices, the disciplines where you're strengthened and your soul grows that when the hour of temptation comes, you're able to stand. You see, Jesus would often on a regular basis, he had a custom or practice. Even coming to the Garden of Gethsemane, that was a practice, a custom of his when he would get up early, when the crowds aren't pushing on him, when the demands of the day aren't breathing down his neck, and he would go out to lonely and deserted places, and he would go there to be with his Father in heaven because Jesus knew something, and he was trying to teach his disciples, and they needed to learn it in the garden that night. He tells them, listen, you got to watch and pray because the temptation is strong that's coming. The devils that are coming are strong. The flesh is strong. And you've got to watch and pray. You've got to practice. You've got to quit talking about it, quit theorizing about it, and just get in the closet and pray because the Spirit is willing, but, fellas, your flesh is weak. You see, godliness is something that you have to be trained in. You have to grow and to stretch those faith muscles. You can't just show up on game day and expect to win. You have to be in the gym. You have to go to practice. You have to do the routines. It's in the routines. It's in the practice. It's in the training where God's rhythms of life take root in your soul. And slowly, steadily, methodically, you are transformed into the image of Christ. So listen, I am not trying to be godly. Rather, I'm training to be godly. This is the mindset you must have, and we all must have. We're not trying to serve God. We're training so that we can serve God. 
First Timothy 4, 7, 9 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is important. I'm not trying. I'm training. And this is how we need to think about following Jesus. We're training. We need to think about spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines like we're training. Because sometimes when I talk about spiritual disciplines in your brain, what you hear is, okay, he's going to tell me I need to read my Bible more. He's going to tell me I need to pray more. He's going to tell me I need to fast again. And many of us in our heads, what you hear when I talk about spiritual disciplines is you, you hear try harder. And maybe you've grown cynical in your thinking because in your Christian faith, you've tried harder before and you get in this cycle of trying harder, you get tired, you quit, and then you feel guilty. You try harder, you get tired, you quit, and then you feel guilty. I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm asking you to train. I'm asking you to train. John Ortberg talks about the difference between training and trying in his book, The, the Life You've Always Wanted. John says, imagine if you went to the doctor one week and they told you, uh, you, without you realizing it, they told you, hey, man, we've been studying you since childhood. We've been looking at your DNA. We've been looking at your blood work. And we have determined that you have the potential to be the greatest marathon runner the world has ever seen. And, 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 and so, man, you, you're like, what? But then you, like, believe them. You start believing them. You're like, you know what? I, 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 I do have the potential to be the greatest marathon runner of all time. So you get all excited. You go down to the running store, down to Fast Break in downtown Chattanooga. You get you a pair of $150 running shoes. Get you some Fabletics shorts, and, you, and, and, and you're ready to go. You look the part. You've been told you got the potential. You get your favorite song in your ear pods, and you just know that you're going to be the greatest long-distance runner ever. And you just go out to Chickamauga Park on Saturday, and you start running. And you get about a half mile in, and then you realize, oh, man, I'm getting kind of tired. And then you realize, I got to do this for 26 more miles. And there's just no way, no matter how hard you try, there's no way you're going to make 26 miles. So you quit, and you give up, and you quit believing what the doctors said about you. But here's the deal. What, the, what if the doctors were right? What if the potential was there, but it's not just going to be realized by you going out and trying to run a marathon today? What if it's about training so that one day you can actualize your potential? You see, every one of us has the potential to be godly. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is dwelling on the inside of you. And Jesus even said, Luke 640, he said, a disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he is, look, fully trained, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Do you believe it's possible? Because Jesus believes it's possible about you, that you can be trained to be like him, and you can realize the spiritual potential in your life. But it's about training, not trying. John Tyson says it like this. He says, we need training plans that are based on small incremental goals 
That may not seem heroic or incredible, but over the course of time, it's going to enable me to do over time what I couldn't do by direct effort. I'm talking about not trying to be godly. I'm talking about training to be godly. So how do we train to be godly? How do we train and practice the things of God so we can end up living our lives like Jesus lived? So that in the hour of temptation, we don't fail like the disciples failed. It's in the training. So I just got a a few, really just a couple of things to say. And then I'm going to talk about a few of the disciplines that I think we should practice. Okay, number one, when it comes to the spiritual disciplines, when it comes to getting in the spiritual gym and let's get it on. Here's the thing. Start small. Start small. Listen, if you, if, if, if I know every year we tell you to get a reading plan and read through the Bible in one year. But man, if you haven't been, do, if, you're, if you can't sit for five minutes and read the Bible, don't try to read through the Bible in a whole year, man. Start small. Read through the Gospels this year. Read through the Psalms this year. Start small. Don't try to bite off more than you can chew where you do it once and it's so hard. You're like, I'm never doing that again. No, start small. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. In one of the chapters of his book, Atomic Habits, he talks about one of his readers who actually lost a hundred pounds. Now, do you know how hard it is to lose a hundred pounds? That's hard. Uh, but when you, he tells a story about how this man lost a hundred pounds and you want to know how he lost a hundred pounds? It says that every day he went to the gym, but when he went to the gym, He only had one rule. When he went to the gym, he was only allowed to go to the gym for five minutes. Five minutes. And that was, it didn't matter what he was doing. If he was lifting weights, if he was running on the treadmill, it didn't matter, he was just sitting around looking at everybody in the gym. He was only allowed to be there for five minutes. When those 300 seconds were up, he had to leave. But here's what happened happens. He, he did it. Only five minutes. Only five minutes. Only five minutes. Week after week. Only five minutes. But one day he said to himself, well, I'm always coming here anyways. I might as well start staying a little while longer. And a few years later, he has lost a hundred pounds, but it all started with five minutes. Let me encourage you today. Let me encourage you. Can you read your Bible for five minutes? Can you pray for five minutes and stop? Try it. Try it this week. Say, you you get all excited about it. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to go after God. Don't do it for an hour. Do it for five minutes. And after you get in the routine of doing it for five minutes and you get in the habit of doing a spiritual practice, see what's going to happen is you're going to become the type of person who reads their Bible. And once you become, it becomes a habit. Once you become the type of person who reads their Bible or become the type of person who prays, then over time, you're going to look up and realize, man, you're doing this almost like it's second nature. Okay, start small. Uh, Remember John Tyson, unheroic incremental goals. It seems like nothing, but it's going to help you actualize your potential. All right, here's another thing. It's okay to be a novice. It's okay to be a novice. You know, one thing that might keep you back 
or discourage you from engaging in the spiritual practices or the spiritual disciplines is because you feel like you're not good at it. I know there's someone watching me right now and you say, I want to pray, but I'm not good at it. I want to read my Bible, but I'm not good at it. I want to practice silence, but it's so hard for me to sit and be still. I can't do it. And you know what I want to say to you? You're exactly right. You're not good at it. You know why you're not good at these things? Because your natural flesh man doesn't want to do these things. And can I tell you something? It is okay to not be good at it. It is okay to say, I don't know how to pray. It is okay to say, I don't know how to fast. It's okay if you mess up. It's okay if you stumble while you're trying it. You're not supposed to be good at it. You're supposed to be a novice at it. You're not going to be automatically highly proficient at it. And it doesn't have to be pretty. You know what you just have to do? Keep showing up. Keep showing up. I mean, look back for a second. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did that look pretty to you? That doesn't look pretty to me. Luke tells us that Jesus is in agony in the garden. And he's like great drops of blood are falling to the ground. Jesus is praying. It ain't pretty. It's agonizing. He's, I don't want to do this. Listen to what he's saying. God, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way than the cross? Not, but not my will, but yours. But I mean, Jesus is agonizing here. It's not desperate. I mean, it's not pretty. It's desperate. He's crying out. Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So if you imagine Jesus' prayer life as some serene man who's at one with himself and God, and he just meditates on the goodness of God for hours and is in perfect harmony with the universe, this is not it. Look at Jesus' prayer. It's honest. It's from his gut. It's really simple. And he says the same words over and over again. Three times Jesus falls on his face and says, Oh, God. Oh, I don't know that I can do this, God. I don't know if I can do it. I don't, I don't want to do it, God. But, Lord, would you help me here? It is just Jesus crying out. And that little prayer, that ugly, gut-wrenching prayer of desperation, somehow it was enough for Jesus to have the grace to go through that moment. It was supplied to Jesus. So you know what you need to do? You just need to show up every day with what you got. Quit trying to be an expert and just show up with what you got. Like the little boy who comes to Jesus with five loaves, with bread and two fish. He, he doesn't have much, but when he comes, the little bit he has, by the grace of God, it multiplies. I like what Jason Isaac says. He says, our task then is to simply cooperate with God. To show up and offer ourselves to God the best we can. And in time, disproportionate to our proficiencies, we begin to transform, taking on the personality of Christ and behaving as he would behave. Behaving as he would behave. Can I, can I tell you, let me just be honest with you. We've been in this 21-day fast. And um, I'm going to be honest with you. I've like, this has been... I have felt as about as spiritual as a rock, okay? I have not felt anything from God. I'm telling you, my prayer times have been dry. My times of reading the Bible have been dry. I feel unfocused. My brain feels scattered. And I'm telling you, it's not been easy. But I want to, on day 18, 
Day 18 of the fast. Finally, I felt like God's presence. I felt him open my heart up and open my mind up and some of the fog and the scatterness. And I felt God break some things off my life. But you know what? For 18 days, it was terrible. <laughs> there was no, it was like, why am I doing this? Why are we fasting? What good is this? It was very unpretty. But you just keep showing up. You just keep showing up. And, one, and God's always there, but one day you're going to know he's there. Just keep showing up. So we've been talking about the soul. We've been talking about our interior lives. We've been talking about our spiritual lives, our emotional health, our maturity. But I, I want you to know, again, spirituality is not something we feel. It's something we practice. We practice faith in the real world. And so, again, I just want to show you the practices that Christians have done for many years to be formed and shaped into the image of God. Dallas Willard says this, The will to do God's will can only become reality as we take action. So we have to take action. And you will be shaped by what you do again and again and again. And we, we, what we practice is what we become. And so there's two different, real quickly, there's two different types of spiritual disciplines that I want to get into very briefly as we're closing today. First are the disciplines of abstinence. In these disciplines, this is a practice where you abstain from something normal and legitimate. So these are normal and legitimate desires that you have, but you abstain from them for a of a certain degree for a certain amount of time. And you do this in order to tame some legitimate desires that have gone wrong. So we're not abstaining from things because they're sinful. Look, food is not in itself sinful. Food is good and you need food, but sometimes it's necessary to abstain from physical food because what you're saying is, God, I want you more than I want that cheeseburger. And it may take you 18 days to get there, but, <laughs> but this is the point. You're abstaining to, 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 to bring some desires back under submission to the Holy Spirit. So there's the practice of solitude, which is abstaining from interaction. With others, the practice of silence, abstaining from the noise of the world around us, fasting, abstaining from food, frugality, abstaining from using money for mere gratification, chastity, abstaining from uh, sexual activity, secrecy, abstaining from drawing attention to ourselves, sacrifice, abstaining from meeting our needs for the sake of others. Now, what would it look like a life that practices these things? Jason Isaac says this. How would you spend 24 hours if you believed you were completely loved by God? Would you be comfortable being alone and quiet? You would, would you enjoy nice things? You enjoy them, but you don't have to have them. Maybe you would feel sexual desires, but you don't feel entitled to them like you must act on them. You would be okay not receiving attention or applause, and you would gladly give yourself for the sake of someone else. When we practice these abstinence, disciplines. This is the type of life that we can be shaped into and formed into. Okay. The other uh, are, the others are the disciplines of engagement. So this is a complement to abstinence. Abstinence is what we abstain from. Engagement are things we do. In the disciplines of engagement, rather than abstaining from things, we are engaging activities that our soul needs to flourish. We're taking action to live out our faith in the material world amongst others. So disciplines of engagement include study, 
It's where you engage the written and the spoken word of God. Worship, it's where you express your love through God, through thoughts, words, rituals, symbols, and song. Celebration, it's when you enjoy yourself based on your faith and confidence in God. Service is where you use your resources and strength for the good of others. Prayer is communicating with God through words and thoughts. Fellowship is engaging with other believers in the spiritual disciplines. Confession is telling others uh, you trust about your weaknesses, your failures, and your sin. And submission is practice to choosing to follow the leadership of others. Now, what would it look like to have these disciplines activated in your life? Jason Isaac says this, Imagine for a moment feeling like you're growing in knowledge and intimacy with God, that you belong to a community of faith that refuses to let you die, a group of Christians who want you to be with and serve because they bring you genuine joy and trust, and you trust them enough to be vulnerable and to follow their leadership even if it requires sacrifice. So, those are things we can abstain from. These are practices we can do in the grow in the image of God or things we can do, we can engage in. And I want to just very briefly highlight a couple from each section that I think would be good. And in this first section, abstinence, things that if you're not doing that, you should do. Silence, solitude, and secrecy. Think about how countercultural those three things are right now, silence, solitude, and secrecy. Your soul needs these things to flourish. I mean, imagine, do you ever do something and you just don't feel the need to tell the world on Facebook that you did it? Imagine a life where you don't have to tell them every cup of coffee you drink. You can just drink it and you don't have to tell nobody. Imagine a life like that, okay? Imagine uh, I mean, do you ever imagine just turning off every single notification on your phone for a few hours and getting away from the noise? I mean, it's gotten so bad where now we have smartwatches, and when we're away from our phones, our watches are buzz, 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 they're buzzing every two seconds to let us know about a text or let us know about an email or a, a social media notification. I mean, we are just noise everywhere. Imagine where you can sit by yourself. Just sit there, and that's okay. Listen to this. A study out of the University of Virginia showed that given the choice, many people preferred undergoing electric shock rather than sitting by their self with their thoughts. Listen, study participants were exposed to a mild shock, which they all reported they didn't like and would pay money to not undergo again. But when left alone in an empty room, with the shocker button for up to 15 minutes, and they removed all distractions. They couldn't check their phone. They couldn't listen to music. They were by themselves with their thoughts. Two-thirds of men and one-fourth of women in the study chose to voluntarily shock themselves rather than sit in silence. Do you realize how much we hate silence and solitude and secrecy? And because we hate it, our souls are shriveling before our very eyes. Look at Jesus's life. Look at his rhythms. Look at his practices. Jesus would often withdraw from crowds and be alone. Have you ever noticed that Jesus would often do a miracle and he would immediately tell the person he did a miracle for, don't tell anybody. 
Keep it to yourself. Let's just keep this between me and you. Okay? Don't tell anybody. Secrecy. He said, when you pray, when you fast, when you give, don't tell. Just do it in secrecy. There is a power to the secrecy in the secret place. Mark 6.30, it says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Can I tell you that when you withdraw and you're silent, it can become a place of fellowship with the Holy Spirit, renewal and strength for your soul. Jesus modeled this. We need it. Guys, we've got to put the distraction machines away. We've got to put the noise away. We've got to be able to sit. Just try it. Why don't you start the day starting with two minutes of dead silence? No talking, no phones, no checking the weather. Just sit there and see what happens. It's going, it's going, it ain't going to be pretty. Your mind's going to wander. You're going to, but listen, the Holy Spirit's doing something in you. It's a practice. Jesus did it. We need to do it. We need to practice. Okay. And as I'm closing, one from the disciplines of engagement. I want to talk about fellowship just for a moment. Because the spiritual discipline, silence, solitude, praying, all of these things are actually things that you don't really need to practice alone, but you need to practice the way of Jesus with someone. Practice the way of Jesus with others. Isolation is a tool of the enemy to pick you off. He will separate you and isolate you like a National Geographic special. You've seen it. The lion, what does the lion always go for? The lions always go for the one isolated uh, deer, okay, by himself. That's who the lion's coming for. When you isolate yourself, that's who the enemy is coming for. When you isolate yourself from the people of God long enough, you start thinking weird thoughts. You start believing weird things. You lose your edge. No one is spurring you on in the things of God. You need to pursue the things of God with others. This is why we have C groups at the church. We're going to be starting C groups soon. You're going to hear about it in February. And I, I, desperate, I, don't, I don't want to have C groups. I don't want to give you another something to do another night of the week where you have an obligation. That's not my goal. What my goal is, why we have C groups is I want you to be able to have some people in your life that you can pursue and practice the ways of Jesus together. And maybe you're, maybe you're experienced in the faith. Maybe God is, you're really grown. Maybe you're, you have really grown in the practices of God. You know what you need to do? You need to lead a C group. You need to start a C group. You need to help others that don't really know how to really pray or read their Bible yet. Maybe you are experienced and skilled. You know what you need to do? You need to gather two or three people along with you and say, hey, come on, let's practice the way of Jesus together. Let's live this thing out together and see what happens. Can I tell you the greatest? I have a C group. I have multiple C groups, but I'm going to tell you the best thing for me. I have a C group. We meet at 6 a.m., some men, and we pray together. And when I tell you it's simple, it ain't, it's simple. We put some music on and we pray together. And I tell you, that's it. But let me tell you something. There is something about praying with these men that changes my life. I can't explain it to you, but just hearing them pray makes me want to pray more. 
It moves me in my heart. Me being in a room with other people and they're crying out to God, it just starts to rub off on me and I start crying out to God and I get moved. It's because you're practicing the way of Jesus together. When I am not just praying about my prayer requests, but we're praying about this one's life and this one's life. And then when the whole group sees the answer to the prayer, it builds our faith. And it's like, man, God's moving in our group. He's moving in our lives. This is awesome. It's life changing. You need to practice the way of Jesus with somebody. I want to show you something I had never seen before about the importance of fellowship. We know the story about doubting Thomas and all that in the book of John. But look at this. John 20, 19 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark on the nails of his, and, and, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I want you to see something. Thomas missed an encounter with Jesus because he wasn't with the disciples. When Jesus came and appeared, The disciples who were in the room were the disciples who experienced an encounter with Jesus. John explicitly tells us Thomas didn't encounter Jesus because Thomas wasn't there. You don't know what you're going to miss when you're not in the room. There is something about pursuing Jesus with the church and with other people. And when you're not in the room, you might miss an encounter with Jesus. And sometimes we think Jesus went out and found Thomas by himself because Thomas said he wouldn't believe. So Jesus runs out and finds Thomas by himself in his room and says, look, Thomas, it's me. But that's not what it says. Look what it says. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. This time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And now Thomas gets to put his finger there and touch the scars and the hands. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus appears again, but this time Thomas is in the room. And Thomas sees Jesus. And now he believes in the resurrection. Jesus didn't go find Thomas out by himself, isolated out in the wilderness somewhere. Jesus appeared again to the group. Jesus appeared again to the disciples. This time Thomas was present. This time he sees Jesus. This time his life is different. Here's what I'm telling you. Be in the room. Be with believers. Don't isolate yourself. Because it's in the room. It's in the body. When two or three gather for the purpose of going after the things of God. When two or three gather to practice the way of Jesus, He is there with them. You need fellowship. You need the practices. You need what Jesus did and showed us. If you want to live the life Jesus lived, you have to do the things He did. 
It's in the spiritual practices. We're not trying, we're training. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that we would be a people who practice the way of Jesus together. We would be a people who practice the things of God together. Let us abstain from things, Lord, desires that have overtaken us. And let us go after the things of you together with other believers. Let us be trained so that when the hour of temptation comes, we don't wilt away under the pressure, but we are supplied the grace we need in the moment to be strong under the face of pressure. I pray it for your people. It's in your mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we love you. We'll see you right here live 9 or 11 or 10 o'clock on Virtual Church. Have a great day.